Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Caparo, editor-at-large at The Block. And today, joining us on the show, on the other side of the mic, is Jason Chow, co-founder and co-founder of Tangent Ventures. Today, we're going to be exploring the impact of Hong Kong's new retail trading regime and what that could have on the market and much more. But before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Do more with your crypto. Whether you're a crypto expert or a newcomer to the world of digital currencies, PayPal provides a secure and convenient platform for your crypto transactions. Start exploring new Web3 applications with peace of mind, knowing that PayPal has your back. Learn more and get started today at paypal.com crypto. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored in part by CleanSpark, America's Bitcoin miner. With CleanSpark, you can feel good about investing in the Bitcoin ecosystem because CleanSpark uses low-carbon energy for their Bitcoin mining data centers and is always optimizing their operations to increase energy efficiency and reduce e-waste, all while partnering with the communities they operate in. If you want to support the future of Bitcoin while also supporting the environment, visit www.cleanspark.com to learn more about the CleanSpark way. So, Jason, you were just mentioning how you're going back and forth between Hong Kong and Singapore. I'm hearing there's a lot of activity out east, as it were. What's the what's the latest? Obviously, we saw news of Hong Kong sort of giving the green light for retail crypto trading. I feel like the center of gravity is increasingly shifting eastward. Retail doesn't seem to be under pressure to the same extent as they are here. Venture activity seems a bit stronger. What what major opportunities do you see on the horizon for the industry from an Asia perspective? Yeah, I think what has been very apparent from my perspective being based out here in Asia is that since the US began its uh, crackdown on crypto, uh, Asia has really opened up, and particularly, particularly Hong Kong as a kind of leading um, go-to destination for crypto. And for those listeners who might be following, uh, Hong Kong is going to go live with its virtual asset service provider licensing regime tomorrow as of uh, the recording of this podcast, which is June 1st, which means that um, crypto exchanges can officially have a, a pathway towards being legitimate businesses and offering uh, trading services to retail investors. At the same time, I think this earlier this week, uh, mainland China also issued their white paper on uh, on their future development, and a large part of that was uh, was web, was blockchain. So this is in pretty stark contrast to what we see out there in the U.S., where the SEC seems to be going after crypto pretty aggressively. Um, so it, it's it's a welcoming change for sure, and we're excited to see more innovation out here in Asia. What sort of was the catalyst behind this this shift? Yeah, so the timing was very, very peculiar because uh, I guess Hong Kong's uh, financial regulatory regime issued some language that was quite pro-crypto uh, almost directly after the collapse of FTX. Um, actually, for, for, for Hong Kong, just to give some context for listeners here, Hong Kong officially banned crypto trading for uh, retail users and restricted it to professional investors, which uh, in the U.S. they call them accredited investors. Uh, I think this was middle of 2021, around May. Uh, 
Um, and at that time, Binance's response was to limit perpetual swaps trading. So people in Hong Kong who are trying to trade uh, on Binance could trade spots still, but couldn't really trade perpetual swaps, even though Binance wasn't technically a licensed and regulated exchange in Hong Kong at that time. Um, but then after the collapse of FTX, Binance actually quietly opened up their perpetual swaps trading to uh, folks in Hong Kong. And directly after FTX as well, uh, the Hong Kong regulators, uh, particularly the HKMA, which is the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, uh, which is the regulator of banks here, uh, they started to push forward a pretty pro-crypto uh, language and essentially quite aggressively pushing for this virtual asset service provider license regime so that uh, we could have uh, legitimately kind of regulated business. And I think a huge part of that was just because of how close of a shave FTX was, because I'm sure your listeners are aware that FTX was set up in Hong Kong. And when they collapsed, uh, they have already moved to the Bahamas. But if they hadn't, then that would have been a pretty big event uh, to have its epicenter in Hong Kong. And even before FTX, exchanges like Bitfinex and BitMEX were already set up in Hong Kong. So Hong Kong has always been uh, the kind of uh, the locus for crypto exchanges. And I think the government, the regulators are recognizing that um, having these offshore exchanges set up based in Hong Kong is probably not the sustainable way to go. Um, so they've decided to push forward this licensing regime. Um, so I think that's probably a pretty big catalyst for why we're seeing the things that we're seeing now. So will this translate in Hong Kong once again becoming the paramount locus? I think the big challenge there is not so much the, the openness of regulators, but more so on the banking side. And I think you see the same issue in U.S. right now as well after the collapse of Silvergate, uh, after the shutting down of Silicon Valley Bank as well. Um, a lot of crypto startups are effectively unbanked, especially startups that have to deal with crypto assets directly and high frequency, such as exchanges. Um, so here we see something quite interesting because the, the regulatory authorities, uh, the HKMA, uh, basically issued a language multiple times telling banks that it is not illegal to service crypto businesses. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the banks still seem quite reticent, uh, quite, quite gun shy when it comes to uh, surfacing uh, crypto companies. I think mostly because of a risk-based approach, they're mostly just concerned with, uh, you know, the provenance of funds for some of these crypto businesses, which is understandable. But without banks, uh, without more banks actively supporting uh, crypto businesses, it's very hard for, uh, you know, a place to, to really thrive uh, for crypto businesses. I think the only exception we've seen was Hashkey Pro, which is one of the first exchanges to have obtained a VASP license in Hong Kong. They are actively using two banks, uh, which is ZA Bank and also Bank of Communications. Um, but for a majority of other businesses, at least anecdotally, it has not been easy for them to, to get banked. Okay, so we have a bit more regulatory clarity. You get that contraflow of retail that could potentially be unlocked in the market. How is that translating into what the venture landscape looks like in Hong Kong? Or has that already been sort of uh, a bit more active, even even heading into this sort of policy shift? Yeah, I think we're obviously in the very early innings of this, right? The, the licensing regime is only starting tomorrow. Uh, but before it even starts, there's already been, I think, at least half a dozen or so crypto exchanges that it, uh, that have maintained their interest to apply for this VASP license. So I do foresee there will be more regulated exchanges set up their base in Hong Kong. Um, so it's not dissimilar to the Singapore approach, where Singapore actually 
didn't ban retails from trading, but they required that exchanges have a license from day one. So that's why Binance is a separate entity called Binance Singapore here in Singapore. Um, whereas Hong Kong is just kind of going that route right now. They started from a no license kind of free for all type of regime. Now they're kind of reining it back a little bit and providing more clarity in terms of regulations. So that historically has been good for uh, you know crypto development in terms of uh, allowing um, some sort of clarity for founders to set up the basis here. But in terms of uh, you know uh, kind of big layer ones coming out of Hong Kong or you know infrastructure project coming out of Hong Kong, I think it's more than just a regulation problem. Um, there are kind of upstream uh, factors that we need to consider. For instance, the the quality and the quantity of technical talent as well. Those are things that can't be solved overnight. Uh, but I, I I am pretty bullish that that will resolve over time. What specific areas of Web3 do you think are receiving the most attention in Asia? Yeah, I think for Asia, uh, Asia has the largest gaming um, market in the world. Uh, if you look at, uh, you know, zooming out of Hong Kong and China a little bit, if you look at um, markets like Korea, all of the uh, big gaming studios in Korea right now are looking at Web3. I, I recently spent two months uh, living in Seoul just to kind of learn about what's going on there, especially after the uh, the fallout of Luna. And I don't think the fervor has changed at all uh, from ex- especially the large gaming studios. Uh, they're sinking millions and millions of dollars into developing Web3 games. So I think gaming is obviously one of the large verticals coming out of here. And not to mention that uh, the largest game in Web3, Axie Infinity, uh, took its roots in, in Southeast Asia, and that's where they kind of found their initial cohort of users. So I'm incredibly excited about uh, gaming use cases in Asia. Um, and in addition, I think the financial use cases also hit home in a lot of Asian markets as well. Uh, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that most of the largest exchanges in crypto have set up base in Asia, are predominantly based in Asia, uh, run by people in Asia. And I think that will continue be, to be the trend. Um, so these two are things that we're watching very, very closely. What do you think makes a Web3 game work? We haven't really seen any takeoff and then stick. You see the sort of hype cycles happen with things like Axie Infinity. But once a sort of money-making opportunity evaporates, so so too does the attention of the player. Yeah, I think the cliche answer is obviously a gameplay. Um, I, I think the tokens are a great way, great way to bootstrap users, but it is not sufficient to uh, retain users over time. And you see this with a lot of big examples out there, right? To a certain extent, Axie, even though they do still have quite a bit of daily active users, it did kind of go through that hype cycle. And to a certain extent, I think any game that introduces any type of speculative element will see massive volatility in their user counts. But at the end of the day, I think what retain users is uh, if they continue to derive value, not just financial value, but just personal value out of playing that game. So it really comes down to having teams that have built games before and have shipped games before and not just crypto native teams. And that's a kind of nuanced shift that we start to see in the gaming market. Whereas in 2020, a lot of the Web3 gaming projects are started by crypto native founders or kind of DeFi native founders that pivoted over to gaming. A lot of the new projects that we're seeing in this cohort are you know, for people who came from gaming studios with no Web3 experience and they're captivated by the opportunity to use tokens to bootstrap users. Um, so I do think that that will translate into higher quality for games uh, over time and higher, better feedback loops uh, that don't have to fully rely on tokens. Um, and when, when that hits, I think we'll be, able to, uh, we'll be able to see very clearly. And do you think there's something specific 
to the Asian market that makes a game work? Yeah, I think in, in, in different markets, there are different types of games that take off. And obviously, um, Asia is a very, very diverse market, so it's hard to generalize. Uh, but I think one trend that I can speak of is probably the penetration of mobile. Um, a lot of Asian countries, especially in Southeast Asia, leap, uh, leapfrogged into mobile directly uh, when, uh, during the internet age. And you see a lot of mobile-based games um, that are developed by uh, crypto companies target Southeast Asia first. So I think a great example is Ronin, uh, which I personally have exposure to, just a disclaimer. Um, if you look at their, their recent push for the five studios they partner with, you know most of them are building mobile-based games, if not all of them. And most of them are targeting Asia as well. So I, I do think the culture of kind of mini games on mobile is more prevalent in Asia, particularly in markets like China. Um, so yeah, so that's something that we're watching closely. Ties into the exuberance that still somewhat exists to a greater extent than it maybe does in uh, America and, and maybe Europe as well. What do you think is, is driving that? Why is retail, um, it, it's almost like Asia is a, a year behind the rest of the market, as it were. What factors do you think are, are at play there? In terms of, uh, in terms, in terms of, of sort of retail activity being relatively more bullish? I think, uh, I don't know if I'd say that, um, I don't know if I characterize it like that, but I, I do think that the consumer behavior and the consumer receptiveness to new applications seems to be higher in general in Asia. Uh, if you look at kind of newfangled ideas, I think a great example is Stepin, right? The application that paid you uh, to, to kind of uh, to, to walk around, basically. A lot of the initial cohort of users came from Asia. Uh, I think that kind of goes back to that mobile nativity. This is not to say, you know, U.S., uh, is not mobile native. US is extremely high mobile penetration. I think there are more number of smartphones than number of uh, people in the US. But uh, it just so happens that in terms of receptiveness to mobile apps, it seems like there is a larger market, a more ready market in, in, in Asia. But it's a bit hard to you know generalize like that. And just for context as well, when we invest, um, you know, we look globally at all markets. Um, but when we look at companies that try to target Asia, we want to make sure that the founders who come to Asia have localized understanding of each specific market because, um, you know, targeting Korea, for instance, is very, very different from targeting Asia, uh, from targeting China. So we want to make sure that uh, whatever founder we back have that nuanced understanding of each market they're working in. How do you think, or rather, what lessons do you think Hong Kong regulators learned from the events of 2022? And how are they sort of implementing consumer protections to avoid uh, future meltdowns of the likes of Celsius and FTX and BlockFi and the list goes on. I think the Hong Kong regulators have an incredibly tough job to do. They have multiple things they have to balance, right? So number one, they've, they've always been keen on becoming a fintech hub, even before crypto, just because of the unique standing of Hong Kong as a financial center, but, but also close to uh, hubs with a lot of technical talent like Shenzhen. Um, but at the same time, they are obviously concerned with uh, the, the risks that come with crypto, which proved very, very real during the collapse of FTX. Now, at the same time, uh, they also don't want to fall behind competing Asia hubs outside of China, like Singapore. Um, so they have to be able to balance these few priorities. Now, at the same time, they also have to align 
probably with uh, mainland Chinese regulation on crypto as well, which means if if China is you know outright banning crypto, I think a lot of people at that time, when the Chinese ban on cryptocurrency trading came out, uh, they basically wrote off Hong Kong because they assumed that you know Hong Kong can never sick if China zags, or if the rest of China zags. So I think these kind of few things that the regulators have to balance is, uh, is incredibly difficult. So that's why I think it's so significant to see the shift in tone recently where Hong Kong seems to be you know, unapologetically bullish on crypto and on cryptocurrency. And China is opening up uh, more to the idea of blockchains as well, uh, which actually they have been quite uh, receptive to since 2019 for those paying attention, but just not to the idea of kind of cryptocurrency speculation. Attention crypto holders, moving crypto is seamless and secure with PayPal. With support for Bitcoin, ETH and more, you can buy, sell, hold, send and check out with crypto at millions of shops online. Not to mention PayPal now supports the ability to send to and from external wallets and charges you nothing when transferring between PayPal and Venmo crypto wallets. Whether you're exploring the world of Web3 or hobbling on for another day, PayPal is the convenient and simple way to convert dollars into crypto. PayPal has your back. They work to protect your financial info and give you confidence every step of your crypto journey. Now's the time to make your crypto move. Get started today at paypal.com slash crypto terms and conditions apply. Here's a message from our sponsor, CleanSpark. CleanSpark is a NASDAQ-listed company that mines Bitcoin. Basically, they build and operate data centers with tens of thousands of computers that help secure Bitcoin, making it more reliable and secure for anybody, anywhere to use. These computers require a lot of energy, but that's why CleanSpark predominantly uses low-carbon energy to power their machines. But that's not all. They care about the communities where their data centers are located. They create jobs, donate to schools and community centers, and revitalize aging electricity grids in rural parts of America. They aren't just a Bitcoin miner. They're one of the most efficient and sustainable Bitcoin miners in America. Visit www.cleanspark.com to learn more. I guess going back to um, the fundraising scene, what does the landscape look like and what type of deals are are hot right now. Yeah, so I guess first uh, on the fundraising question, firstly on the on the supply side of the equation, which is the, the the capital allocators. If you look at the recent headlines about large funds being raised, uh, I think most of them are in Asia or in China specifically. I think Hashkey announced their four hundred million dollar fund. Uh, there is a relatively newer fund called ABCDE, which I believe is run by the former executives, uh, from, former founders of Huobi. Uh, that uh, sits at probably about $500 million that are deploying into crypto. And it's been a little while since we saw kind of funds of similar size uh, raised in the West. So I, I do think in terms of appetite from the allocators into this fund, there might might have been a slight shift uh, to favor Asia. Now, in terms of deal flow, uh, a lot of the companies we're seeing are still built by uh, you know, technical talent in Silicon Valley, a lot of the large infrastructure projects that have raised recent massive rounds have been based in the West. Uh, but at the same time, uh, given the uh, kind of crackdown on 
Web2 businesses in China over the last year. Uh, I think anecdotally, we are seeing quite a lot of talent outflow from Web2 into Web3. And a lot of these folks are quite different in profile compared to your average kind of Web2 developer. A lot of these guys didn't get a cryptography background, don't have infrastructure background. A lot of these guys are application builders. So we're really excited to see interesting consumer-facing applications and games coming out from that type of founders because it's very rare that we get a wave of you know app builders coming into crypto. It's always been kind of infrastructure first. So I think that that's another kind of important shift in terms of the type of deals that we're starting to see. In terms of the the sort of capital allocation side of the equation, you mentioned a number of new raises. Where's where's the sort of money coming from? How institutional is it in your sense? Yeah, so that I don't have much insight into. Uh, I think in the case of some of the kind of long tail funds, a lot of those are like proprietary capital, um, just from maybe prior sales of crypto companies or crypto exchanges. Um, I don't doubt that a lot of that is probably from family office wealth as well. Uh, I think the, the, the fundraising landscape, as any kind of TradFi uh, hedge funder will be able to tell you, is quite different in the U.S. versus in, in China, uh, where uh, there are massive, massive endowments in the U.S. writing checks uh, you know, systematically, whereas in Asia, I don't think that that kind of infra- not infrastructure, but I don't think that type of standard uh, exists is quite different. Um, but yeah, it, it's... Um, I guess long story short, it's not entirely clear where most of the capital is from. But um, anecdotally, I think a lot of family office wealth is quite interested in crypto still. What are your sort of what's I mean, I don't know if you have a view on this as well, but it's in the same vein as the previous question, which is what does the capital markets situation look like in Hong Kong, in maybe Singapore and some of these other jurisdictions out east? Obviously, in the wake of, of FTX and Alameda collapsing, there's been a global um, liquidity gap, as it were. And you can see that in the volumes across exchanges. But what does the – is there a budding or booming sort of um, capital markets ecosystem of trading firms and liquidity providers um, – uh, kind of growing alongside these new entrepreneurs and venture capitalists? Yeah, I think I'd be lying if I say that it's still growing, especially compared to 2020, 2021. Uh, a lot of the market makers that we talk to here in Asia have pared back their uh, activities just because of the low uh, low liquidity, which begets lower liquidity. Um, but I don't doubt that you know in, in, in a bullish kind of cycle, a lot of these participants will come back. Um, I think it, it's good to see that these participants are not leaving crypto for good. Now, in terms of the active participants, um, I think majority of the capital that still participate in secondary markets, at least for things outside of Bitcoin or outside of Ethereum, are still kind of retail traders or prop funds, which I would bucket under retail traders as well. Um, so the, the, there are very few kind of um, institutional uh, hedge funds that are, you know, trading in uh, in the altcoin markets, uh, especially, I think it's especially apparent if you look at the liquidity of a lot of these things um, versus the liquidity of, you know, equities, right? Um, so, yeah, I think it's still a very, very retail dominated market, but uh, with the support for blockchain coming out from China and coming from well, from Hong Kong as well, I, I do think that um, that could reignite institutional interest in crypto. But uh, that will for sure take some time, especially just given how um, I guess how challenging a year twenty twenty two was. A lot of the activity has moved from 
centralized exchanges to decentralized platforms, almost yeah. sort of rooted in, in the meme coin um, movement, as it were. How, how do you, going back to Hong Kong, is there more clarity around DEXs as well that might help sort of uh, grow that corner of the market? Yeah, so I think one interesting thing that we've been seeing is in terms of the market share for uh, decentralized derivatives as a percentage of centralized derivatives. It's still in the low single digit percentages, but it has been going up uh, since uh, since the collapse of FTX. Um, I think the regulators probably have their hands full just trying to regulate uh, the centralized exchanges, which are still you know tens of times bigger than decentralized exchanges. Um, so currently, there hasn't been much clarity given for decentralized exchanges. And given the language in some of this new licensing regime, it does seem like a lot of the attention is uh, is put on, uh, you know, anti-money laundering, uh, KYC, uh, making sure that uh, you don't kind of endorse uh, certain assets or induce investments. So a lot of these things are a lot easier to enforce in the centralized context. So I don't think the current licensing regime uh, applies to you know a Uniswap, for instance. Uh, now, on the flip side, it's also incredibly hard for regulators to, to ban the use of uh, decentralized exchanges. They could maybe curtail the use of the front ends, uh, which host these decentralized exchanges, but uh, decentralized front ends or anyone can also spin up an instance to, uh, to trade on these kind of uh, decentralized exchanges. Uh, so I, I think it will be quite a bit of challenge uh, for regulators to, um, to control DeFi still. Well, any closing thoughts or anything you're excited about going uh, into the next six months? Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm the most excited about is looking for uh, founders that are building what I call zero to one use cases, basically making things that um, enable behavior that simply was not possible before. Um, So um, we're we're on the lookout for just really creative founders working on completely new things, um, reasoning from first principles. And honestly, I think this is the best time to start investing. Uh, in crypto, especially uh, given the opportunities that we start to see in Asia as well. Um, so I'm really, really excited for that um, over the next six months, 12 months, 24 months, you call it. Um, so we're always ready uh, to invest in new founders. So reach out anytime uh, to us at Tangent. That's right. And Jason at Tangent, co-founder, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks a lot, Frank. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.